This podcast is brought to you by RMA, the Risk Management Association. RMA's sole purpose is to advance the use of sound risk management principles in the financial services industry. Learn more at rmahq.org. Hi, I'm Stephen Krasowski, Communications Manager at RMA. From geopolitical tensions to labor shortages, central bank policy tightening, and increasing inflation, every new headline reveals just how much of a hindrance the U.S. economy is facing. Institutions that are more resilient translate that into a competitive advantage by taking a more comprehensive approach to lending risks. Today, I'm joined by John Ullman, Senior Strategist at CoStar Risk Analytics, who specializes in commercial real estate debt and works with clients across the country, including lenders of all sizes and commercial mortgage-backed securities investors, to discuss the current risks he is seeing in the CRE market. John, thanks for joining us. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. So, John, what are some of the biggest risks that you are seeing in the CRE market today? Yeah, so I think that that's a, a great place to start. We can start fairly broad and then, uh, you know, as we continue our conversation, get a little more narrow. Uh, but today, you know, we're at an interesting crossroads with commercial real estate, right? So as an overall economy, these have been fairly tumultuous times coming off of or still in one of the longest bull markets in history, depending on, you know, which resource you're using. Um, and it seems like the narrative for the market changes every day. You know, from one day, we're suggesting that we're headed towards a recession. And then the next day, we are effectively at full employment. As an overall economy, we're still sort of trying to figure out where exactly we are. Um, you know, inflation is another huge concern, um, and we continue to see, you know, the government stepping in and telling us that they're actively trying to target bringing inflation back down to a more reasonable level. All of this to say that there are risks that we can control and risks that we cannot control. For today, it makes sense to talk about the risks that we can control or if we can't control them, at least ensure that we as a community are aware of and, and actively managing around that. Of those, there are a few that jump to the top of the list and then ones that also are perhaps are a bit more trendy or, or loose in definition. So the key risks that we're seeing consistently surround fundamentals and basically the question of, is this good real estate? Uh, you know, obviously, we look at things from from a debt perspective and from a lending perspective. And really, you know, that's what it boils down to is, is this still good real estate? Now, how we come up to the answer to that is what's driving the bus. Um, and really, you know, kind of what are the key risks is the other side to the, that coin. Um, so you have on one side, is this good real estate? And then what are the risks associated with this good real estate? So the key risks that I think about kind of take a twofold approach. So the first would be starting kind of at the macro level and then working our way down. And then the second starting really in, in kind of the minutia and working our way back up to the macro level. Another way to phrase that would be coming up with some conjecture around systematic versus idiosyncratic risk in commercial real estate. And then how do those two pieces eventually collide as well? John, how do you differentiate between systematic and idiosyncratic risks? Yes. So that is, you know, there are so many shades of gray and so much overlap within those two pieces that it's, you know, certainly not without challenges. But what we can try to do is, is bifurcate the two as best we can. So starting with systematic, 
which I would most closely equate to, you know, what we consider market risk, right? So these would be risks or market circumstances that we don't have a ton of control over. Um, you know, inflation being kind of an easy one to to pick on right now, um, but you know, demographics, things of that nature, right? So fundamentally looking at something like supply and demand of space available and everything that cascades down from that. Um, as I mentioned, demographic risk or circumstance would be another great example. Um, and now we certainly don't need to go down a rabbit hole today on what causes systematic risk, um, you know, consumer behavior, tax incentives for businesses to relocate, et cetera. Um, and I'm certainly not an economist. Um, so, you know, sticking within commercial real estate um, and really kind of within the five major food groups of office, hotel, industrial, multifamily, and retail, we look at systematic risk as, as really market fundamentals. John, for those idiosyncratic risks, how do your clients leverage CoStar to help understand those risks? Yes. So the idiosyncratic risks are sort of, again, the other side of, of the coin to the market risk. And idiosyncratic as a you know function of the definition are things that don't fit the norm, right? So these would be, um, you know, things that we have really great data on, right? So if we take a step back for a second and talk about what CoStar as an organization does really, really well, um, you know, we cover over 6 million commercial real estate properties in the United States. Our goal is to be census level uh, for those properties that we're surveilling. So really kind of best in class data. And that goes from, you know, getting things like rents, uh, getting tenant rosters, availability, sublet availability, um, all of those different pieces that are effectively those idiosyncratic risk factors, right? So what does a large spike in availability mean, if anything, to the demand in that market, right? So how do we contextualize idiosyncratic risk in the context of those systematic risks that we talk about? And really for commercial real estate, um, you, you know, CoStar is such a great resource for that. So you have all of the marketplaces that CoStar owns that feed that data into this larger CoStar mechanism where now you can contextualize, okay, I look up a property, right? You know, we can use the office in Boston as an example, where you can find out all of the idiosyncrasies of what makes that office tick and then contextualize it around what's making that market perform or not perform, right? So that's really the difference um, in leveraging the CoStar data is, you know, if you want to see what the tenant roster is, how many law firms are in this particular building, um, understanding that kind of information really allows clients to get more insight and perhaps even get more comfortable with the idiosyncratic risks of a property. And I think that's really, you know, what differentiates what a lender might be comfortable doing versus what, you know, they may not be comfortable doing. So if you can understand the supply and demand, not only within a market, but for a particular property, and then contextualize that further with, okay, this is a LEED certified building. This has an Energy Star rating of X. It has XYZ amenities. You know, maybe they have a gym or a relationship with a gym that's next door or it's close to public transport. And, you know, historically, that level of insight in commercial real estate in a bulk data fashion has not always been available. 
John, what are the different risk factors that you are seeing between the different property types, office specifically, having been in the news a lot lately? Yes. So office is an interesting case. Um, You know, pre-pandemic, the notion of working from home five days a week, 50 weeks a year was unheard of. Right. Um, And obviously, within the commercial real estate space, um, you know, you're thinking about office and being part of a commercial real estate firm. It's sort of this strange notion to think that everybody should be working from home. Right. So, you know, it's certainly one of the hotter topics. And, you know, we have the work from home in mass office demand has sagged and there's speculation about what that demand looks like going forward. The questions that we've been facing off with with our clients and and with the community at large are both short-term and long-term, where do we see office going? And I look at this as kind of a a twofold question um, with one part, you know, short-term and I'll call that in the next, you know, one, two, five years, but then larger scale, you know, where is office headed in the next 10, 15, 50 years? Now, Stephen, if you'll humor me for just a second here, um, we're going to veer off the tracks a little bit, but we'll, it'll come back. So just stick with me. Um, but there was a study done by an anthropologist named Robin Dunbar, who has observed historically that the average number of people in a group for civilization to be successful is about 150. Um, And we've seen that within communities going all the way back as far as civilization goes. Um, We see that in army platoons. We see that in companies. Um, The Gore-Tex company found that when they had the number of people in their office around 150, that they were more successful than when it was either smaller than that or larger than that. Um, And this is a, a pretty popular study. So how does that relate to office, right? We've seen, and it's been well-documented throughout the pandemic that people have experienced more loneliness. People have experienced, um, you know, more mental health challenges. And again, this is not just conjecture. There, there have been some studies about this. So my argument longer term is, you know, we need office, right? We need a place where people congregate. You can't just have everybody working in their basement communicating over Zoom. Um, you know, it's it's a function of human civilization that we congregate and we work together, whether that's hunting and gathering or collecting commercial real estate data. It is critically important. And we've continued to see studies that have come out about this. The Wall Street Journal published something, uh, I believe, last week um, that touched on this topic as well. Now, that's the 10, 15, 50-year answer. The six-month, one-year, five-year answer is it's going to take a little bit of time to adapt back to that full work-from-home model. And don't get me wrong, I I love having some flexibility, right? And I think that that's where people get a little bit, not confused, but they, they belabor the work-from-home point, and it's more of a work-flexibility question, right? So in the event that my kid is sick, can I work from home? Or, you know, if I need to have a flex schedule where your spouse or your partner or your dog walker can't get there until later in the day or whatever the situation is, is there that flexibility with your employer to still come into the office, but maybe not the traditional nine to five, right? Um, And I think that's 
going to take a little bit of time, not only for employees to adapt to, but also for managers to adapt to, right? So it's, you know, okay, John's working, but he's working seven to three today, or, you know, some other similar situation. Um, and that is the, the short-term challenge for employers and employees is finding what that happy balance is. The other piece of this is, you know, they're not making more land, right? I mean, the, the island of Manhattan, that square footage or square mileage, I guess, in, in a broader sense, is pretty set. So, you know, you have organizations and, and companies that are building these world headquarters and, and new buildings that are in prime real estate locations, right? And we talked about this at the beginning, that you have good real estate. And maybe the fundamentals right now are not great, but they're not making any more of it, right? So unless you're moving to somewhere where you can just build a new city, Manhattan's pretty much built. So occupying that space or owning that space on a long enough time horizon, I believe still remains attractive. John, what have some of the takeaways been through the pandemic on the risk approach to CRA? Yes. So a lot of the similar themes that we've we've talked about um, with respect to, you know, what are we comfortable from a lending perspective underwriting? So, you know, we work with lenders of all shapes and sizes um, from, you know, some of the largest financing institutions in the United States to smaller credit unions. And what's interesting is that you have some bifurcation between those two types of firms, um, particularly as we get towards the smaller side of things, you get into a lot of relationship lending, right? So, you know, where a large bank or asset manager may not care about who the other person is on the other side of the loan application, these smaller firms certainly do care about that. And they are, you know, a, a mainstay in the community because of that. Now, there are certainly some overlaps here too, where you know, again, not to harp on this point, but good real estate is always going to find good financing, right? So there's always going to be financing for that class A type of property. Um, but how do we understand the risks? And, um, you know, we met with a client a week or two ago, and she made the comment of, we will finance it if it is still serving a customer. And I thought that that was such a great way of explaining what we try and articulate with respect to, is this good real estate? Does this still serve its customer base? And I think that risk approach applies across all of the different property types, right? So, you know, during the pandemic, we saw Hawaii hotels skyrocket in terms of average daily rate. Um, and it's a nice recovery for them. But there are customers that wanted to consume that real estate, right? So the Four Seasons or equivalent in Hawaii was flooded with demand because people couldn't go to Europe. People couldn't go to you know, Croatia or wherever they want to go on their, their vacation because domestic travel was so much easier than international travel, right? You're still serving that customer base. Um, similarly, you know, Class A office, right? If you have 
a smoothie bar and coffee and a golf simulator, right? You have a customer base that wants to be in the office. Whereas if you're in, you know, a, a dilapidated or a, a, you know, a class C office, you know, maybe the, some of the onus needs to be pushed back onto the owners of, hey, you're no longer serving a customer because people want more from this, right? So going back to our question about office, I want to come into work if I have a great workspace. If I have to worry about a chair breaking, then that's not really a place that I want to come in to work. So it's finding this balance between owners and tenants of how do I improve my space such that we're improving the overall demand for office, right? So a lot of those different pieces, um, you know, we did experience some of this migration where people bought homes, they left the city. It doesn't seem like that's a long-term problem. In fact, um, I think the average asking rent for a one bedroom in Boston right now is $2,600 a month. And people are coming in over asking because there is such a pent up demand. Um, you know, Boston obviously performs a little bit differently with all of the college kids, but this is a theme that we're seeing across, you know, the major hubs of traditional, you know, big apartment spaces um, in the US. So I, I don't see that as being a huge problem. Um, with respect to the demand, you know, in, again, in these key markets. John, from a financing standpoint, how has the pandemic changed lenders approach? Yes. So the class A stuff is, it's, it's easy, right? It's, it's almost like, okay, let's, let's move on to the class B and class C and, and those types of, you know, either less attractive buildings or sort of more esoteric asset classes where the financing is, is not necessarily such a layup. And from that perspective, I mean, NOI and really income, right, is such an important measure. So, you know, demonstrating that there is income in this property. And again, going back to this whole question of, am I serving a customer base, right? Um, You know, that is just so critically important. And I think, you know, we saw this after the Great Recession, in 08, 09, where some of the pro forma income statements and things like that, they just were not acceptable anymore. And I think that for the next little while here, we're going to see more and more of that, right? And pro forma has kind of gone away. We don't see it hardly as much, um, but more scrutiny over the income and expenses of a building Um, is going to drive, I mean, really kind of better risk management from a lending institution, right? So that's really what this boils down to is, you know, when times are great, you can finance anything and and you can either rely on, you know, the numerator, the denominator of LTV, um, where, you know, your value is going to continue to increase just as a function of the overall economy you know, this kind of comes full circle back to our idiosyncratic versus systematic risk. If the system is just moving ahead, right, and you're you're getting 5% a year in appreciation of value, then that's great, right? You can lend fairly risk-free feeling good about that. But if the system is not growing at 5% each year and or you have pieces or markets or submarkets that are not growing at that rate, you need to be a little bit more careful with what number you're using for 
the current financing and then what that, that number looks like at refinancing, right? So it's not only, okay, we'll underwrite it now and we're going to hold it on our books and we're going to be comfortable with that because we think that it's going to grow 5% a year or whatever, you know, the term is. Now it's also, okay, well, what does this asset look like in five years or 10 years when the loan is up? And are we potentially going to be in a situation where either it hasn't amortized down enough that they can cover the value of the loan or that the value has not increased enough such that this is attractive enough to a different lender that they will refinance it? So there's a lot of, and commercial real estate is, is tricky in this way because the duration is so long particularly for you know balance sheet lenders where there are lockouts on what you can prepay and things of that nature managing that duration from a risk management perspective requires a lot of expertise a lot of information and a good understanding of the fundamentals it's really kind of a symphony of those systematic and idiosyncratic pieces that we've talked about john to wrap up looking forward where do you see cre heading in the next 5 years and are there any sustaining risks that you are especially concerned about. Yes, yeah, so, you know, the next 5 years and and a lot of these buildings, right? It's sort of the next 50 years, um, you know, what's going to happen long-term risks. So, you know, the e- the easy one here is is certainly climate change and climate risk. We've seen over and over again that this is a real thing. It is not going away. Um and what does that mean for commercial real estate, right? So if we we go back to the point about Manhattan, you know, in 50 years, what is the water level? What is sea level, right? So that becomes, you know, a critically important question in terms of, you know, what you're comfortable from a risk management perspective, not only on the debt side of things, but certainly from the equity side of things too, in terms of of what you own or what you're lending on. Um, you, you know, and and part of that uh, I think will be driven by what insurance companies are comfortable with. So, you know, you see it now where insurance premiums for where you, you know, if you build or if you own or if you lend in a hurricane prone area, um, you know, your insurance premiums are just going to be higher than if, you know, you built the same building in, you know, Ohio, right? Um, and that's just sort of, you know, coastal real estate is is certainly desirable real estate but it also comes with its own unique challenges so that's that's definitely one um that i see not going away and becoming an increasingly bigger problem i hope it's not a huge problem uh you know in our lifetime but uh it's definitely not going away one of the other things that that we certainly look at um and i think the lending and and cre community as a whole took a pretty hard look at this um, after it happened, um, you know, was what happened with the Surfside condo, which is, you know, horrible um, and also sad because it could have been avoided, right? So you have buildings that are, you know, potentially underbuilt or under-maintained that this is not just going to go away, right? You have to go in and, and fix these kinds of things so that you don't have another event like that happen. Um, and it's just, you know, buildings buildings are old, right? You, you need to maintain them. And particularly, you know, the owners, the onus is really on them to go in and 
and reinvest money into these properties. And, and that comes a little bit back to the, you know, improving to go from a class B to a class A type office space or retail experience, right? Where there is pressure across all asset classes to maintain and improve buildings. And when demand was outpacing supply, it's not as much of an issue. But when you have a surplus in supply, then you need to do something to increase that demand and improving um, you know, the buildings and the structures is certainly an easy way to, to do that. John, this has been a great discussion on the risks we're seeing in the CRE market today and ways CoStar can help in really understanding the impact of these risks. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Stephen.